But anyway, Catherine, it's great to have you here. Um, somewhat, <laughs> maybe not in person, but you know, here on a <laughs> screen, you. which is cool. Um, so um, yeah, talk to us a little bit about um, Bryanston. Kind of, you know, obviously you're an OB, and um, yeah. yeah, talk to us a little bit about maybe like joining Bryanston. What um, kind of the the um, what you what made you pick Bryanston to begin with? Um, kind of coming in as um, you know whatever age you were. Oh sure. So, um, so I I joined Bryanston just for sixth form actually. Um, and before then, I had been at a very academic girls' school, so it was a very, very big um, change for me, and at a day school as well. Um, and I'd been—I also lived in America for a short for for three years, um, kind of at the beginning of beginning of secondary school. So um, I'd had the American school experience, which was actually probably more similar to what Brian Stinden was like. Um, and then I had this very academic girls school. And the reason I picked Brian was actually because um, when, when we lived in America, I was, my school was fantastic. It was actually the school that Mean Girls is based on. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't mean, it was absolutely lovely. It was a fantastic school. Um, but that, you know, that is actually what it looked like inside. and. We had some fam. My my mum's friend had two daughters, and they moved to America while we lived there, and they were both at Bryanston. And um, I remember them telling me about their school and how much they liked their school. And then when we moved back to America to England as a family, I went to this this girls' school, and I was absolutely miserable. And when it came up to um, to uh, sixth form. Uh, I, I thought about going to kind of a local sixth form college and leaving the school I was at. And then I had this moment of being like, hang on, I remember meeting these people who told me that they actually liked school. And I rem I wonder where they went. And then I found out they went to Bryanston and I asked my parents to take me for an, for an open day. Um, so that's how I ended up at Bryanston. Um because I remember people telling me that they were happy at school and thinking <laughs> that's not my experience. Oh, Can wow. I have so, some yeah, of that? that change? Yeah, totally. And and how does it <laughs> feel kind of coming from, um, well, I guess Bryanson's got that co-education feeling, um, whereas yeah. uh, you said previously that you were at um, an all girls school. So what was that, what was that um, transition like going from an all girls school um, to kind of suddenly being surrounded by, I guess, lots of boys instead? Yeah. So that wasn't too much of a big adjustment, to be honest, because the school I was at America was co-ed. Right. Um, but the really big adjustment was that um, the school I was at was was very, very academic. So um, I was really bottom of the heap. Um, and I remember coming to Bryanston and thinking. Uh, so when I joined Bryanston, I didn't want to go to university. I was done with done with school. I was ready to go into the real world and I really, really couldn't stand studying. And then I came to Bryanston and I remember having this incredible realisation, which is that any success that you have, whether it's music, academics, sport, is your own. It's not somebody else's. And I really realised that I was motivated to do well for myself, not for somebody else. So there was no suddenly no like teacher standing over me telling me to work harder on my homework. I was suddenly like, oh, actually, if I work harder on my homework and I do better, that's my success. That's not anyone else's and no one can take that away from me. And as a result of coming to Bryanston, which was a much lower pressured environment, I did much better. 
because right. I tried yeah. harder. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to. There was that kind and of a space to be, you know, be yeah. yourself and kind of, you know, work on what you what you what you like or whatever you want to get better at, as you say. So that environment's exactly. really cool. Um, yeah. And you, I mean, you talk about, um, you spoke a little bit about how you lived in America um, and that's, you know, kind of coming to England. I mean, what's that like? I mean, we have, you know, a few American students here, but, you know, all completely different stories. So it's, it'd be interesting to hear your account of kind of that American to England transition. Yeah, sure. So um, where I lived in America was uh, the North Shore of Chicago. So um have you seen Home Alone 1? I have. Every, every, I have everybody's of course. Of course, okay, <laughs> everybody's seen Home Alone 1. So it's normally a good it's normally a good metric. Um that was the this house that house was on the street next to me. Wow. So that's kind of gives you an idea of what the suburb looked like. It was yeah. these very very wide leafy streets. Um with houses with kind of nice yards behind them. Um and if you depending on how much you're how much of a Home Alone fan you really are, um the the whole suburb that we lived in is different parts of Home Alone are filmed in it. So the bit when he's hiding in a nativity set is in the church that was also next to my house. The bit where he steals a toothbrush and he runs across an ice rink. That was where we used to go skating every weekend. So that was really what it was, what it looked like as a place. Um, it was a very, it was, it was a lovely place to live. Um, and I think, the experience that I had, because we I moved there when I was eight. So the experience that you have, I think, as an eight-year-old is entirely shaped by your parents and your school, because that's you're at home or you're at school, right? So my parents had a really great attitude when we moved out there, which was that they would say yes to everything that they were invited to, even if they thought it looked boring. Oh, cool. And <laughs> <laughs> about a week in, they were invited to the park district if you think of parks and rec which a lot of people have now know what a park district is because of parks and rec <laughs> they're invited to the park district annual annual general meeting which not everything's as fun as parks and rec so it's going to be boring they were like that's going to be awful let's not go and they went and they became we became best friends as a family with the chairman of the park district at the time who had children three children the same age as me my sister my brother lived on the street next door we all became great friends and we all see each other all of the time. So even now we're all, we're very, very close. So, you know, I think the, their attitude of say yes to everything is what made our experience in America so great. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think that's the same for, you know, that's the same for anybody um, in any situation, going into any new situation, right? Like if you're invited to do something, it's the things that sometimes don't look the best that actually give you the best opportunities. Um so that really, really shaped my experience. And then the other thing that shaped my experience was my school. So um, the way that you learn in America is actually very different from here. And I think that that is really beneficial in many ways. It does mean sometimes there's a bit of a mismatch in the curriculum. So I did find when I came back to the UK, I was really behind on some things. Really? So if there are some American students who think, oh, my gosh, I'm behind on this and I don't understand mm. whatever, that's fine. Because actually you end up with loads of skills and other things that English students don't have, don't learn in the same way. So, for instance, American schooling has a much more of a focus on um, public speaking which is a skill that everybody uses in their future life every day. So actually it's really, really important. You probably don't learn algebra to the same level or my ability to speak languages is appalling. And that's because I learned 
different languages at different times and it never quite matched up with what anyone else was learning. So, you know, the the kind of nitty gritty of the actual academics sometimes is a mismatch, but the overall skills, it is really, really important. And and that's, I think, what a lot of what I learned in America that yeah. translates. So, um, yeah, just if if people come from different systems where they've had different experiences, I think it's important for us for everybody who's being educated in in England to recognise that those people might be coming with different experiences that are really valuable to learn from. And then equally, if they're coming with experience and they think they're a bit behind on something, they're ahead on other things. So it actually evens out. Absolutely. And having a bit of experience in both the American and the English kind of, um, you know, educational environment, what would you say from Mm. your experience, um, despite the fact that you were learning at different ages, at different, you know, in different countries, um, what would you say uh, is the main um like benefits to both of those despite so you know, I know he, how you just said um how um uh america kind of really specialized on public speaking um what would mm. you say kind of the english system um really kind of benefits uh educationally speaking if that makes sense yeah sure so um i think that oh what would i say so for some people I think are really good generalists and I think some people are really good at very, very specific things. And I think the English system benefits people who are really, who have really specific skill sets. Mm-hmm. So some people, and I'm sure we all know them, right? We've all been in classes with them. We've all, we all know them in our, in our lives outside school, but totally. who, are, who are incredible at French or incredible at maths or terrible at English, but really really good at hockey you know people have like a will have like a really specific skill set and that's I think those people I think the English system is really beneficial for those people but I actually think Bryanston is a much more all-rounded school than most UK schools so if you're somebody who is a bit of a generalist I actually think Bryanston's a really really great place to be as well yeah definitely um because if you if you really love art the art facilities are out of this world right but equally if you're if you're somebody who's a bit of a jack of all trades then that's great too yes, i think i think Bryanston you know. mm-hmm. does really well to support all every people with those two really different kind of models of learning right no that's no that's a great way to put it and kind of coming to Bryanston um in the sixth mm-hmm. form so it's just the kind of two the two years you were here is that correct yeah yeah so tell me what you kind of like studied and what you kind of took away from Bryanston while you were here in that kind of i guess relatively short period of time sure so um so I st- uh, telling you what I studied is is an easy place to start, I think. So I studied biology, chemistry, um, English and DT. Wow. Wow. Not easy at all. Which I think is a bit of a random combo, actually. So um, when I and this is an example, I think, of where, you know, your success is completely your own and, and your motive, it's your motivation and finding what motivates you is important. So um, when I was studying for my GCSEs um, and you talk to your teachers about your A-level choices and at that point this is before I came to Bryson I asked my um, my chemistry teacher if um, I could do chemistry for A-level he said you'll struggle to pass chemistry at A-level so he wouldn't recommend it I came to Bryanston and everyone's was much more supportive um, I got 96% in my A-level I did a huge amount of biochemistry in my undergrad degree and then I became a chemistry tutor after uni. So, you know, that different people 
excel at different things at different stages of their life. Maybe 15-year-old me was not good at chemistry, but it doesn't mean that you can't learn it later. And if you're motivated to do it, you can do it. Um, so that that's one one subject. I then did biology, which is what I then did for my undergrad. Um, and then I did um, sign technology and that I did that for um, I did that in both years. But I don't know if Bryanson does this still, but they they used to um, get you to take as many of your A-levels, your modules early as possible. Is, is that still the case? Um, I think not so much anymore. I think that's kind of more of like a, you know, a, an, you know, an old idea. But um, I think it does right. vary on subjects. So um, DT might be able to. I can't speak on behalf of yeah, many subjects. Because what yeah, I... not, not generally speaking. OK. OK. So it's changed a bit since my day, which is just aging me. But um, <laughs> what what they used to do was get you to take as many modules early as possible. So I took all of my DT in the um, A3 year. Right. All my exams, not my coursework, but all my exams. And then my biology, I took all of my exams. I took them. I took each module as as I went. So by the time I got to the got to when everybody is busy sitting their A levels, I sat some chemistry modules and one biology module, and no DT. And I dropped English at A level at AS level. So although it sounds like I did three quite busy subjects. Yeah, totally. I actually had one and a half A-levels when everyone else was sitting their A-levels to do. So you almost relieved the stress by Which kind was of, amazing. you know, maximising your, I guess, you know, what you could get out of, you know, the time leading up to the A-levels, you know, in that kind of A3 yeah. year, start of A2 year, you're really kind of maximising what you could do. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and would you say, are you pleased you did it that way in hindsight? Do you think it almost improved your performance? Yeah, I think so. It meant I was less stressed, I think. And and some people are really good at sitting exams, aren't they? And some people are not. I'm terrible. I get very nervous. Um, so it worked for me, I think, doing it that way. I think it took the pressure off a little bit. Oh, of course. And kind of... I think people who are good at, uh, good at exams are lucky people because... Yeah, it's not it's everyone's super, cup of tea, you know. that's for sure. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Do you no. think you were definitely one of those types of people or kind of more coursework based or...? Definitely, I would prefer the coursework really? for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, I'm, I've and I've always been a bit envious of the people who are good at exams yeah. because the pressure. If you have to do exams, it's nice to be good at them. You know, yeah, <laughs> nice absolutely. to be able to remember stuff. Of course, <laughs> the memories. Yeah, very, very important. Um, and kind of speaking um, about Bryson, kind of on a more social term. Um, so, uh, how I mean, like, kind of who I mean, who do you remember? I suppose. Um, and I'm not not asking you to like name your favourites, but I mean. Um, is there anyone that kind of particularly stood out while you were here, uh, maybe as a, as a teacher or or a role model that you really looked up to that maybe inspired you to do, you know, as well as you've done? Yeah, so um, I think that so I had one chemistry teacher that I think was really good. Um, she. So I'm dyslexic and I didn't know. Um, and she was also dyslexic and she picked it up. And she really helped me be able to structure my thoughts with, you know, lines of text is never going to work for me and I'm never going to be able to read a page and remember everything on it. She was really good at helping me understand how, you know, I could learn better from flow diagrams or from mind maps or from colours and that kind of stuff. So that was really important. I think she really helped me learn how I'd learn better. Um which was really great. So if you can find a teacher who'll help you do that, that's probably the most important thing. Um, as for friends, I have a handful of really, really close friends from Bryanston. Um, I think it's hard when you when you move, and and I guess 
the when you leave Bryanston, you'll pro- you'll find this more. But I went to a you know a lot of people move around a lot for school, but I went to a a reset a, a, a primary school, a secondary school, a school in America, Bryanston, and then three different unis and five different jobs at this point, right? You cannot retain all of your friendships from all of those places. Of it is not possible, yeah, right? Absolutely. You just like your time is your time is finite, and that's not possible. But I think if you can, you know, if you can look back at something a decade, two decades later, with a handful of really close friends, that's the so most important need, thing, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. So I've got I've got a handful of really really close friends from Bryanston, um, two of whom were in my in my house, but in a different year. Um, and then a couple who are in my year. So um, I, I definitely, like, I definitely look back at my time at Bryanston with very, very fond memories. Oh, that's amazing. And you kind of said about um, how you know you've kind of uh, been through a lot of change, and that you were, you know, you went to loads of different schools, three different unis, I believe you said. So as you left Bryanston, kind of talk to us a little bit about your your kind of uni journey. I mean, three different universities. You know, that's a you know a big change, quite a few big changes there. So what was that like? Yeah, so um, it was great. So I did, um, I, I came to what, my career in a really, really roundabout way. So a lot of people, you know, y- you probably find this now, right? You must have friends who know exactly what they're going to do yeah, at university and for their career. And that's great. And I, but I wasn't one of them. So um, I went around the houses much more. So I did, I did an undergrad, I did my um, an undergrad in zoology, which is animal biology at Durham. Um, and the reason I did that was because one of the boys in my year at Bryanston said, I'm going to study zoology. I was like, cool, what's that? He went animal biology. I was like, great, I'll uh, I'll do that too. And I actually went then went to the same university with him and did the same subject. So um, so that wasn't very um, imaginative of me, was it? I just followed <laughs> him. Um, and then, um, so I did that. That was three years. And then I left there um, and I did a master's in nutrition, which is at King's, which is in London. Um, And then after that, I did a, sorry, I've got hiccups. Um, I did a postgrad diploma um, also at King's, which is in dietetics. So the difference between a postgrad diploma and a master's, they're very, very similar. It's basically a postgrad diploma is in this, in this case was a master's, but without the dissertation. Right. Because... I'd already done one dissertation. I didn't really need, I didn't really feel like I needed to stay at university to do another one. Um, I wanted to just crack on with life. So um, that's why I did, that's why I did what I did. Absolutely. And kind of what made you, um, so um, just kind of in terms of chronologically speaking, so you went from, you stayed at King's, did you, did you do the master's mm. first and then do the post, post-grad, is that right? Yes, I did. Right. So they, they were, they're two separate courses. So the master's was one year course mm. um, and then the post-grad was a year and a half. Right. And, what made um, and you... I could have done that as a master's, but that would have been a two year course. So right. I'd have been six years at uni, which is a bit quite a silly. Long time. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a long time. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> Going from not wanting to go to uni at all to, to yeah, being there for five years. and a half years yeah, was long that's... enough. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's understandable. So what kind of made you choose um, to kind of stay on at King's and maybe do and do this kind of um, this postgrad in um, dietetics? Yeah. So. Um, so the reason I. It, so there are courses where you can go. For, I could have gone for my undergrad to doing a postgrad to doing a, a master's or a postgrad diploma in dietetics. I technically didn't need to do that master's in nutrition, um, and there would have been some places I could have got into. But King's 
is the most is is the most academically rigorous place to study to be a dietitian. Um, so that's where I wanted to be. And in order to get onto their dietetics course, I had to do the masters in nutrition because my undergrad didn't contain quite the right mix of of physiology and biochemistry for what they wanted. So um, that's why. Yeah. So, so it was a bit of a roundabout way. Yeah, kind of. I could have done it better. Of, well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice that you kind of were able to find what you, you know, what you're passionate about, even if it's kind of like yeah. through the long way, if that makes sense. So and what's kind yeah. of the link between dietetics and um, and um, kind of what you were studying previously, you know, like A level, for example, you know, you were doing DT, um, you did English, uh, chemistry and biology. What's kind of the link there between um, that and dietetics, if that makes sense? Yeah, so. So so um, dietetics is basically the medical side of nutrition. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people say, like, what's a dietitian? It, I mean, it sounds it's got the word diet in it. So most people think it's probably got to do something to do with weight loss. Um, it's 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 the nutrition, the medical part of being a nutritionist, basically, is what a dietitian is. Um, so biochemistry and but uh, so bio, sorry, biology and chemistry are really important mm -hmm. for that. Um so studying biology and chemistry at A-level allowed me to do my undergrad, which allowed me to do my master's, although I could have done it as an undergrad, actually. You couldn't, I could have gone straight there, but I didn't. Um, so biology and chemistry was important to me. Um, English, I did it because I quite like reading. Um, and I thought, well, why not? It was, a, it was, a, I'm not somebody who's really, really, really good at one thing. So... I wasn't going to choose to do, I was never going to do physics or maths. I hate them and I'm awful at them. And I'm complete, I can, I mean, I can barely add. So absolutely not. That would have been a disaster. Um, I just, I just quite like, I like, I like reading. I find that interesting. So why not? Um, and then I did DT because I wanted something, I wanted a non-academic A-level. Um, I wanted to mix things up a bit. Um, and actually I'm so glad I did because you know, I remember I had on Thursdays, I had double chemistry followed by double DT. And it was like, I can do this. We can get through <laughs> this together. You know, I've got this release at the end. So yeah, um, for me, that was very important. Yeah, a lot of That's people, cool. are those kind of people who can go from one class to the next and concentrate, but I'm not. So no, no. that wasn't going to be me. <laughs> not for everyone. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and dietetics, the word, I mean, I'm not quite sure. To be honest, I didn't actually know what it meant until pretty recently. <laughs> um, so Nobody does. No, I can it's imagine fine. it's quite a, a niche word in a way. So um, what kind of are the main, I guess, links to dietetics? So dietetics, you were saying how it's quite, you know, most people associate it with weight loss, but I assume it's quite a lot deeper than that. So is there a lot of, um, is, do you have to kind of, do you focus a lot on food? Is there like well-being aspects to it? So what really do you kind of go into when you, when you think of the word dietetics? Yeah, that's a really great question because um, it's very broad. So most people who graduate as a dietitian um, will go and work in healthcare um, and maybe not for their whole career, but that's when most people start out. So predominantly working in the NHS. Um, but within that, of course, it's, it's extremely broad. So what I do is... Um, I work in at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, um, which a lot of people have heard of because they have an enormous children's charity, um, which really raises the profile into the public eye. Um, and it's a it's a really big children's hospital. It's the size of two city blocks and it's wow. it's in central London. So it is massive. Um, and I think today they had 365 inpatients. They see they get about 60. I think last year they had 62,000 referrals. Wow. Um, so it's it's big. 
it's it's um it's a it's an amazing place to work so I worked there and I until last week my jobs changed slightly which I can exp- try and explain to you a little bit uh, but until last week I worked on the cardiac intensive care unit so um when so Great Ormond Street has three different intensive care units um, and this one is specifically for children with problems with their heart so most of them are babies um and most of them are newborns um but they it does go up until the age of 18 and I specifically was advising on the nutrition for their for them in their situ in their situation of intensive care so not that many children in intensive care can feed using their mouth because um they normally have a breathing tube which stops them being able to use their mouth um so most children in intensive care would be fed through tubes and that might be a tube that goes through their nose into their stomach into their intestines um or sometimes intravenously um if they if you can't use their their digestive system at all um so that's what I do, but that is not representative of what most dietitians do. I don't think. <laughs> um, some, you know, a lot of a lot of dietitians will be working in weight in weight management or the kind of diseases associated with weight management, so type two diabetes management or um, stroke prevention, heart attack prevention, those kind of areas. Um, any any disease that you can think of. Ha- normally has some kind of nutritional impact so whether that's um cancers or whether that's respiratory conditions whether it's because people can't eat as much can't eat as well um mental health so so it's really really varied the the areas that people work in and i just chose a very 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 specific bit (laughs) yeah right completely narrowed down entirely and and as you said um as of last week, I think you said that, um, you know, your jobs change a little bit. So um, mm. kind of talk to us a little bit about that change. I know it's all, it must be pretty new to you, uh, but can you kind of fill us in as best you can? Yeah, exactly. That's why I said I'll try to explain, because, of course, when you're a week into a job, can you really explain no, what you do? Yeah, I, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so I decided a while ago that I needed to change um, in order to kind of think think in a slightly different way. Um, so I now work, I, my, my job title is a quality improvement coach, um, which means that I no longer work on a ward and I no longer have patients. Um, and what I do is, um, it, it's almost like a sort of internal healthcare consultancy role for Great Ormond Street. So if people have ideas um, for how things could change or improve, and those ideas might have come from um, safety incidences or patient outcomes, or it might have come from patient experiences, um, a way you might decide, okay, I need to change the way I do this, but it's really, really hard. You're one one little person in one very, very big system. It's really, really hard. To, to make changes on a system level. So the team that I work with is all about how you can change the system to better support our patients. Right. So, yeah, quite. I suppose that's a, quite a big change in a way. I mean, huge change, huge change. So, um, the yeah, it's it's probably more like a healthcare consultant, really, um, com- than, than, what I, than what I used to do. But you're still remaining internal to the, you know, to the Great Ormond Street, you know. Um, you know kind of hospital is that right yes exactly right and yeah. 
what would you say you love most about your job or you know kind of what you know what motivates you to you know keep doing what you're doing sure so um I'll answer it for the dietitian bit first mm. because they're so different aren't they that actually it's really hard to 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 bring them together so I reckon what I love most about my job is that I really really like talking to people and I really like forming relationships with people and when it comes to anything to do with nutrition I mean eating is such an integral part of our kind of lifestyle and of how how we spend our time how we enjoy our time how we socialize with people so so I think it's really important if you want to go into the field of being a nutritionist or a dietitian that you've got to really, really like people yeah, um, right. and you've got to really like getting to know people and kind of forming those relationships. Um, and then also, you know, we've all decided one day we've woken up normally after Christmas and thought, I need to eat more healthily. Right. I need to eat, you know, less cheese or, or, or you know, drink less or eat less meat for sustainability reasons whatever it might be right we've all decided we'll try and make a change but the thing about nutrition is a change that you make won't make a difference tomorrow and it won't make a difference the next day but it, if you keep making that change it'll make a difference the next week the next month the next year and so the reason I went into pediatrics is because by making those changes and supporting children they can live with the benefits of that for their whole life and that that's what is really important to me about about working with children, I think. Um, but then on another level, the the really the best part of my job is seeing patients go home, because if if you think that there's a I mean, for a lot of our children, they're really unwell. There's a chance that they won't make it home. And then when they do, it really is an amazing feeling. And they tell you about what they're most excited to do when they get home or and it, it almost always see my siblings or play with my dog they are the top they're always it's amazing actually I thought you know I always think to children bicker with their siblings but no they all want to go home to see their siblings so that's that is amazing and quite often we look after most of my patients are tiny babies and they might be going home for the first time and getting to spend time as a family the parents and the baby now together at home so that is an amazing part of my job um and then when it comes to my new job, because, of course, I won't have that direct patient contact. Um, although you don't have the you don't maybe see the people going home after you looking after them, what you do is by making a change on a wider level, you impact more people, even if it's not direct. So I think when it comes to choosing your career, thinking really carefully about what motivates you is really important. So so for me it's it's for me it's seeing seeing ha the happiness of other people and the health of other people which motivates me and that's that's why I think it's really important to think closely at this stage of your life when you're all planning your careers what you want to do yeah of course and you just said actually um how one of the best parts of your job um and one of the things that um kind of made you most happy um was you know seeing you know kind of especially the kids going home um, mm. I, I suppose, um, kind of leading on to my next question about kind of challenges and drawbacks. Um, how, w what does it feel like to you if you know you're, if you kind of see, um, you know, the health of someone kind of deteriorate, and and what would that, what would that mean for you? Perhaps you, you would see someone who perhaps wouldn't quite make it home, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, everyone deals with things in really different ways, and everybody has a bad day at the office, right? Um, 
So I think this is something that if people are listening who aren't interested in healthcare, this is something that you can definitely extrapolate. For some people, you know, looking after sick children can be really emotionally charged. And when they're not, if they're not going to make it home, they're part or they're, if they're passing away or whether that's immediate or whether that's quite protracted or whether they're going home to pass away. I think what's really important is for me, I never wanted to be somebody who says, oh, well, it gets easier every time that you have a patient who passes away, it gets easier. For some people, that is their coping mechanism. For me, I didn't ever want that to become my coping mechanism because that's somebody's child. And and I think every child is, is, is equally important, irrespective of how long you've been working for. Um, so the way I the way I think of it, which is a bit different, I think, from how most people think about about children passing away would be if I want to be able to process how I feel well enough so that I can still give 100% of myself to the next patient. Um, So it's not dismissing what's just happened, but it's coping with it and being able to move on. And your coping strategy can come from anywhere, right? That could come from talking to your colleagues, that could come from um, talking to your family and friends. One of my previous bosses who um, I admire hugely, she said one of her huge coping strategies was writing, um, writing cards to families because you're recognising the child and you, you're giving that closure and also support to the family at the same time. So I think there are different ways to cope with challenges, but as long as you're able to move on and, and think about your next thing in front of you, that's what really matters, I think. I think that intimacy between, you know, kind of you um, as a dietitian and, you know, the kind of family, the, the child especially, and the family of that child, I think that's that's so touching. I think that's, that's a quite, that's, as you said, that's a nice way to kind of put closure um, in like a very positive manner to what is yeah. for them, a, I'm sure, a very, very difficult situation. Um, yeah. Completely off that, actually, um, I'm interested to see what you think in that um, a lot of people say there's a lot of different views in that there is, um, for example, take any snack that's perhaps not healthy do you think there is an unhealthy or like a bad food to eat or do you think it's not based on foods uh specific foods perhaps it's the pattern um of kind of how you eat what would you what's your kind of opinion on that yeah so i don't think there are any bad foods and i think labeling foods good and bad um means that if you if you put value on a food as a good food or a bad food um what you're doing is you're actually making yourself want something more if you label it as bad for most people. On the other hand, you know, people, a lot of people, especially young people, really struggle with body image um, and really struggle with having a healthy relationship with food. And labelling foods good and bad is really unhelpful for for people like that who need the support. I think a much healthier way to think about our, your, our relationship with food it's about dietary patterns. So it's not about I ate a Mars bar, therefore I have to go for a 5k run because I have to wear it off. It's I ate a Mars bar. How did it make me feel? Was it good? Do I feel good? Did I have a good time eating it? Your experience of the food is a really important part of it. Do I, how, how does my body feel? Do I feel, you know, if you've just, if you're on gold DOV and you eat a Mars bar, you shouldn't be beating yourself up about it, right? So wh- what's the context of you eating the food? How do you feel about the food? And what's your general dietary pattern? Um, 
I mean, a lot of people say, you know, sugar is the enemy. Yes, high high sugar foods are really addictive and really bad for your teeth um, and lead do lead to excess weight gain um, and associated diseases. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should just cut everything out. Um, I think we should instead we should be focusing on foods that we know to be healthy. So things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains proteins whether whether you eat meat or not meat or kind of meat alternatives focusing on them rather than labeling them as good and then labeling other things as bad absolutely and that's a, that's an interesting approach actually especially you know from someone with so much um you know expertise in the field but um interestingly again um what, what are your opinions on the traffic light system so for example, mm-hmm. you know how there's like, um, you know, kind of a food product or, you know, drink product as well um, in supermarkets. You know, they've kind of got like um, perhaps it'd be like salt green and then like, you know, um, carbohydrates green. And it might be like sugars and fats, red, you know, or whatever. Um, how what impact do you think that has on people? And do you think that's a good idea to continue with or do you think it has a negative impact on on, on people? Yeah. So um, I think the traffic light system is really tricky because. You can never expect somebody to go into a supermarket and read the back of every, back of every packet. Um, there's some evidence that suggests when people are newly diagnosed with allergies, the amount of time it takes them to do their shopping increases by 600 wow. percent because they're reading the back of packets. And that is a huge impact on your ability to enjoy your ability to buy food and enjoy food. So so we need to make food labeling easy and accessible when it comes to things like allergens, which I know is not the traffic light system. Um, when it comes to the traffic light system, again, it's all about accessibility. It's it's again, it's much more to do with your dietary patterns. So, um, you know, we would, for instance, if somebody is um, has problems with their heart or their kidneys and they should be following a low salt diet, the traffic light system might be really, really helpful for them because they can see at a snapshot what kind of foods they would avoid. If it's somebody who has he's struggling with their body image and their relationship with food the traffic light system could be really unhelpful so it's very hard to have a one-size-fits-all approach i think definitely and in the context of someone who has um who kind of sees himself with a poor body image and has perhaps that unhealthy relationship with food do you think um food well do you think food is directly kind of correlated to body image or do you think it's also like exercise or you know, perhaps is it like um, something mindfulness related or is it kind of, would you say it's all about the food uh, in terms of, you know, kind of um, body image, if that makes sense? No, I don't think it's all about the food. I think there are, there are so many there are so many factors that impact body image. And one thing that's so different for, for me versus you is that I grew up in a in a world where we didn't have smartphones. So that is completely different. I didn't have Instagram and TikTok. I I got Facebook when I was at Bryanston and at, even then it was pretty new. People didn't really know what it was for. And I think that kind of, we didn't have that kind of comparatonitis that Instagram and TikTok can breed in the same way at all. So I think my experiences versus the experiences of teenagers now are very, very different around body image. Um, I think food is often a really, really small part of it, but it can be a trigger for a lot of people. And what would your biggest advice be to someone um, with kind of a body image issue and a, an, an unhealthy food relationship um, in terms of kind of perhaps approaching a supermarket and buying uh, different types of food? So that's something which is 
I'm not an expert on this at all. So someone who is an expert on this will give a much, much, much better, better um, response than I would. Um, my advice would be that there are people who can help you. And it's the same for any, any, anything that you're, any mental health issue or anything that you're struggling with or worrying about is that a problem shared is always a problem halved. So irrespective of where that support comes from, whoever you want, you decide is to approach is the right person. If you're asking for help to a person, you've, that's 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 the most important thing so um there will be people who if if you if you find particular things triggering then there will be people who'll be able to support you through that process but the most important thing is asking for support absolutely no that's great um and i'm um, kind of coming back to your um your job uh, not as of not not the job as of a week ago but kind of your job just yeah. before that so um sure. can you, is there um a, a particular story that you can tell us that has um that has resonated with you quite nicely um in terms of um uh, dealing with a patient or it'd be great sure. if you could yeah, so this is quite an uplifting one that I actually thought of because um, I think some of what I just said is quite miserable, isn't it? But this is a happy, 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 happy story. So this little boy, he was about 12 um, and he had a, a very complicated social background, um, single mum and dad in prison. And he wasn't really being visited that much in hospital, which as a 12 year old is just so, so hard. I mean, we would find it hard as adults. So, I mean, I can't even imagine how hard that must be as a 12 year old. And he was in hospital for about a month. Um, and he was having high dose chemotherapy, which is when children have to come into hospital to have, have the dose of chemotherapy continuously, they can't come in as an outpatient. So, and it makes you feel very, very, very unwell. So he, he'd been very unwell and he was working towards going home. Um, that's the depressing bit over this bit next, but it's good. So, um, he had a feeding tube um, and we needed to get his feeding tube out because we wanted to send him home without it. But he wasn't eating anything and you can't just take it out because he's reliant on that for all of his nutrition, but also all of his fluid. So we were really trying to encourage him to eat. And I said, right, what, what do you want for lunch? He said, I don't want lunch. I'm not hungry. I'm like, okay, what would make you hungry? He was like, I'm sad. I'm not hungry because I'm sad. It's like, okay, what would make you happy? Oh well, I I like dogs. Like, All right, I can I can I can work with this. So Great Ormond Street has an amazing um, structure of volunteers, and some of those volunteers are dogs. And actually, if you go on YouTube, Great Ormond Street have recently just put up a video of what of the of some of the therapy dogs going around the hospital, and it's very heartwarming to see. Um, so I said, okay, okay, right, I'm going off to find you a dog. So I go off and find a therapy dog, and I said to the the therapy dog's owner. Could you please go and visit this boy? He is desperate to meet to see a dog. So the therapy dog goes into his room. Um, I didn't see him for the rest of the day. And I go back the next day, bearing in mind this boy, and he had not got out of bed for a month. He didn't eat anything. And he, whenever you went into his room, he rolled over to look in the opposite direction and refused to speak. The next day I go to the ward. He's running up and down the ward with the dog. He's eaten breakfast. He's eaten lunch. He's the he's just happy. And it is. It was because he cuddled a dog. And I think what is really, really important from that story is that my agenda was to get him, get his feeding tube out. But actually, it was his happiness that really, really was the thing that was going to make the difference. And to anyone with any interest in healthcare at all, 
um, I would strongly, strongly recommend watching a, a film called Patch Adams, which is um, a Robin Williams film. And it's all about a doctor who goes on a mission to make people happy. And it's a true story and it's a real tearjerker. So make sure you have a have some tissues with you. But I think it's that is the most important thing in healthcare is that if you can make people happy and you give them motivation, then then that can help them get better. I think you've probably just answered my next question, to be honest, but wow, that I, I think that's such a touching story. But what I was going to ask is how um, how translatable do you think this kind of story is in the, the message we can take from it? So in this case, it seems to be that, you know, happiness, you know, in this case almost was the solution to, um, I mean, a problem that was, you know, quite a problem for this, you know, this lovely 12 year old boy. Have you been yeah. in a similar position that, you know, happiness is the answer to, you know, kind of similar but different kind of stories or how how would you say that kind of that is yeah so um I can give you a personal story actually rather than a kind of career story so I was also a patient at Great Ormond Street when I was little um I had a brain tumor removed when I was five and following that um I had to learn to um I had to learn to walk I had to learn to um I had to toilet train myself again, um, which is really hard because you're when you're four, five, you're actually at the age at which you're beginning to notice that you're different from your peers. So wetting yourself when you're at school is ho- not embarrassing when you're two. It's horrifying when you're three, uh, horrifying when you're four. So so it was it was a big it was a really it's an experience that's made a big impact on my life. Um, and. What I remember um about the happiness piece was when I was in hospital um and the my my parents had been had been out for the day to look after my sister because they didn't want her to feel like she'd just been sort of got rid of and she was only six and she didn't really know what was going on and so they'd spent the day with her and then they came back and they bought me they bought me some um some light cheese from the market so they came in with some light cheese um, and a present from one of my dad's colleagues. And I sat up in bed and went, presents! Because <laughs> I'm four and four-year-olds love presents. And they burst into tears and also start and laughing all at the same time. There was a, there was a lot of emotion going on. Right. I think when it comes to healthcare, it's the happiness of the fa- of the children, but it's also the happiness of the parents, which make a difference too. And in that moment, me sitting up in bed was the thing that could make my parents the happiest. So... Um, and that was because of the light cheese. So it's it's one it's one small thing that you think isn't going to make a difference that can actually change the trajectory of the ch- the child's day, the parent's day, and your day. Because actually, when you see that, it's really nice to see <laughs> as oh, a healthcare gosh. provider. I think that's so cool in this in the sense that it's, you know it really as you were saying earlier how you you know you're kind of how you got to your career career is quite roundabout. Um, do you think in a way that um you know this kind of personal story and the fact that you were a patient of Great Ormond Street Hospital is that um and kind of you know now working there do you, is that kind of a coincidence or was that almost intentional kind of, in, a, in a way yeah I don't think it was a coincidence I um I went back to Great Ormond Street every month until I was 12 so a lot of my childhood memories are going to hospital and so I think I probably grew up with more of awareness of healthcare than most children do um, because I was more reliant on healthcare um, and I had more interaction with doctors, nurses, occupational therapists, et cetera. So um, 
I think that I think that's made a big impact on my choice to go into decision to go into healthcare. I think my decision to go into, into pediatrics is probably also impacted by that experience. Um, and my decision to work at Great Ormond Street, of course, there's a huge aspect which you want to give back to the hospital, which gave so much to you. Um, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, isn't it? If I didn't have that experience, would I be, would I have followed the same career path? Would I be working the same place? I mean, it's just impossible know, to say. Absolutely. I hope so but I don't know. <laughs> Gosh. And no, thank you for that. And I think probably my final question for you um, this evening, Catherine. So what advice would you give to kind of current students, especially, and um, there's a lot of students in general, not just at Bryson that take biochemistry or biology or chemistry, uh, but not specifically just to them. But what ex um, what um, advice would you give to students, uh, you know, starting to think about their career choices, kind of coming to the end of their schooling career and thinking about universities and future pathways beyond there? Sure. So. The Bryanston Alumni Network is amazing and you should definitely tap into it for everything that you can. Um, like when when originally when Bryanston reached out to me um, about this podcast series, that's why I thought it was such a cool idea. And I was so happy to be asked, very, very flattered to be asked, because actually I would have really valued hearing from people who worked in industries I was interested in. So, I mean, of course, listen to podcasts, but people who are getting this advice already listen to your podcast. So that's not very helpful advice. Use your use the alumni network. So if somebody's come on the podcast and talked about their career, it probably means that they're happy for you to reach out to them and talk to them as well. So you use your alumni network. And when you ask for ask for help from people, whether it's because you heard them on a on this podcast or whether it's because it's your, you know, cousin's friend who you heard of their job and it sounded cool. Ask them for what you want in a really specific, very polite, but direct way. So if somebody comes to me and says, um, tell me about, uh, I'm interested in being a dietitian, sends me an email, says I'm interested in being a dietitian. It's hard to know what to do with that. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm interested in, in becoming a dietitian, I'm currently choosing my A-levels and I want to know about your experience of choosing these subjects can I have a half hour chat with you on Zoom? That's a really useful request because you know exactly what they want and you can make sure that you can give them what they want. So when you network, network with a, with real intention of, of what you're asking for. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Be specific. OK. Uh, yeah, specific. I think that's what I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, that's entirely what I understand there. So, no, thank you. Yeah. Catherine, thank you so, so much. It's been wonderful. You are to have so you. welcome. No, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. And um, from my understanding, I think everything's run really smoothly here tonight. So thank you for thank Yay. you to Joe, who's in the studio, who's been helping us out really throughout the whole journey. So thank you for that. And oh, um, Catherine, thank you, guys. Catherine, it's well, been it's wonderful to podcast, have you. It's a great podcast, so really well done. And I think there's so much kind of useful um, advice. It's kind of all squeezed in in the last kind of 50 minutes or so. So thank you for that. And I think that would be, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful an to have you. absolute pleasure. Um, it's sorry, Take care, to, guys. sorry that you're not here in person, but it's great to, you know, kind of that we've been able to do this. And uh, to everyone out there listening, we'll be back next week for, uh, well, a special one again. It's kind of like a two in one. So we'll have two interviews in one evening, which is something to um, be excited for. So tune in. Um, that's that's kind of my advice. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week on the 17th, I believe. And once again, Catherine, thank you so, so much. It's been great to have you. And uh, we'll see you Absolute all next pleasure. week. Thank you. Take care. You too. Have a nice weekend. Probably the best school radio station in the world. This is Bry Radio. Bry Radio.